Welcome to the Life Purpose Podcast, the podcast that supports you in finding and embodying your purpose. My name is Paulisari, and I am your host. In this episode, I talk to Mark Nepo. Mark is a poet, a teacher, a storyteller, and a New York Times best-selling author. This time we take a somewhat different spin on purpose. Purpose can often be viewed in terms of attaining specific goals, but in this conversation Mark speaks about purpose more as something that we discover on the way towards our goals. He emphasizes that we need to have goals, but that the goals are not the purpose. It is who we become and what we discover on the way there, that is. He conveys this point beautifully when he says that it's important to have dreams, but whilst our dreams don't always come true, sometimes, by engaging them, we come true. As an author, Mark has published 22 books and recorded 15 audio projects. One of his books, The Exquisite Risk, was listed by Spirituality and Practice as one of the best spiritual books of 2005 calling it one of the best books we've ever read on what it takes to live an authentic life. He has appeared on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday program several times. So, here is my conversation with Mark Nepo. I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, so welcome to the Life Purpose podcast, Mark. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Okay, so, yeah, let's talk about purpose. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, yeah, let's start with the very basics here in terms of your understanding of purpose, because people have different definitions and people understand the concept of life purpose in different ways. So I'm curious to know how how you frame that. Sure, sure. And, and, you know, just let me begin with all of our conversation that, you know, I have no answers, um, but I'm happy to speak to things from my experience. And, you know, what I often say when I'm involved in teaching and that, you know, what I offer are examples and not instructions. Um, So from, you know, from my experience, which I'm, let me give some context. I'm 69. And um, when I was in my 30s, you might know from some of my work that I had a rare form of lymphoma, I almost died and thankfully uh, did not. And that had really changed everything. Uh, for me, and uh, especially uh, around, you know, my approach to learning, to life, to purpose. And so my feeling or my experience of purpose is that the heart, the, the, I feel like our purpose, our soul's purpose is uh, unrestrained aliveness. Mm. And Wherever that happens, um, almost doesn't matter. Mm. And so we being human, of course, it's wonderful to have dreams and goals and ambitions and things to work for. But that's like wood thrown on the fire. That I've come to experience that the soul, my soul, my portion of universal spirit that 
I've been blessed to carry in this body, in this time on earth. Um, it really doesn't care what, what I put that toward, uh, as long as I keep putting the, the wood of, of care and authentic living, throwing that on the fire so that the heart can stay fully alive. And so, you know, how that has translated in my life um, is, and again, I, I think there's nothing wrong with wanting things or working toward things, but I found that often what I have wanted, working for what I've wanted, has often turned out to be an apprenticeship for working with what I've been given. And it's mm. working with what I've been given that has shown me my true gifts. Mm. So, you know, one way that I understand this is, um, and I, you know, my kind of innate language is through metaphor. It's the, the way I've always learned. It's the way the world has always spoken to me. And so here a metaphor that's helped me. And, and when I see them, they be just like poems when I retrieve them become my teacher. So here is the teaching that's inherent in a, a wooden match, you know, just a little stick match that has the little phosphorus at the end, you know, mm. and, you know, we all know that the light and warmth of that match is dormant in the tip of the match. And it doesn't reveal itself until you strike that match against a surface. Mm. And what I've come to understand in my life is that uh, very much that way, our gifts do not reveal their light or warmth until our gifts are struck against the needs of the world. Mm. And so, you know, for me, um, and we can talk about that too, but there's a there's an inherent and inevitable rhythm between solitude and community because my gifts are no good if they exist in a vacuum. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. So unrestrained aliveness. And I get curious because it sounds like for you purpose is more about how we relate to things rather than what we do, how we do it rather than how we do um, what we do. Um, isn't there isn't there still something that the soul desires in a sense? Isn't there aren't we here for a specific reason in a well, sense? For me, and again, this is my view, um, I feel, uh, well, I would say yes and no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I would say that, you know, I. so if we listen to what I share and we say, well, then I just don't have to do anything. I can sit and meditate and the purpose will manifest itself. Well, I think we have to participate. And mm -hmm. I think that our dreams and our goals are necessary, but we tend to make gods out of our goals and dreams. Yeah. Yeah. And then if I'm, you know, when they're really just 
kindling, as I said, as I was saying, for the fire of aliveness. And they're also they're a guess. There, I aim with my goals and my dreams and my specific mm. imagination of things. And but then we tend to deify them and harden them. And then if I reach for it and miss, oh, I'm a failure. Mm. If I get it, it's a success. And and I don't know, but you know, at this point in my life, I think uh, defining success as getting what we want and failure is not. Is kind of an infantile way of defining success and failure. Yeah. And um, so for me, um, I feel like, you know, we work, there's an inherent paradox here. And, and so let me mention that and then say a few things about it. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about this in my book, The Endless Practice, um, that we are, we are challenged to learn how to ask for what we need only to practice accepting what we're given. We are challenged to learn how to ask for what we need, only to practice accepting what we're given. Mm. And so, you know, we often, it, it it's, takes courage and centeredness to ask for what we need, to see what we even need, to give voice to it. Um, but we often don't get what we ask for. So why, why, what's the reward? Well, I have found while I often don't get what I have the courage to ask for, the reward is by inhabiting or embodying my soul that thoroughly, I become more intimate with my own true nature. And the reward for accepting, and we can talk about acceptance, which doesn't mean resignation. Mm. You know, I would say acceptance is cooperating with the truth of what is. So when I am accepting what I'm given, I become intimate with the true nature of everything that's not me. And so, you know, I I feel like... um, Often we give, we can give and should give our full effort and hold nothing back to work toward what we think or see or imagine are our goals and our purpose and our, our dreams. And, you know, often what we dream for doesn't come true. But when we can devote ourselves to our dreams, sometimes we come true. Yeah. That's more important. That's more important. Let, let me give you a, a very brief story that's in um, my book of stories, a book of teaching stories called As Far As the Heart Can See. It's the opening story. And it's a story about a uh, bicyclist who's, you know, he's like training for something of the order of like the, you know, the Tour de France. And, you know, it's a serious race and he's very serious about all this. You know, he has the state of the art equipment. He shaves all the hair on his body. So there's very little resistance and he practices and trains. And the day of the race comes the first leg of the race and they're off. And, uh, you know, after uh, a few miles, as they crest through the country and they comb the crest, the top of a hill, and he's going very fast down the, the downslope of the hill. And briefly, he's so far ahead 
that you briefly can't see the other racers. And as he's coasting at a great speed, at the very bottom of the hill, out of nowhere, a great blue heron with its wings spread swoops over his handlebars. Well, my God, he's stunned. He stops. He literally comes to a stop and straddles his bike because the heron had opened something he was chasing. And the other racers are catching up and he's stunned and he's stopped. He's not, he's no longer pedaling. And now the story moves years ahead and he's older. And once in a while, if you, you'll catch him staring into the woods behind his house. And once in a while, if you ask him, what cost you the race? He might say, I didn't lose the race. I left it. Mm. Now, <clears throat> now that's a story that came to me. And, you know, like I said, I retrieve these things and then I have to work with them. I didn't necessarily know what that means, <clears throat> but being with it, working with it, what it starts to say to me is, you know, he was training to meet the heron. Yeah. He thought he was training to win the race. But if you told him he was training to meet the heron, he wouldn't have trained. He would have said, ah, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. What are you even talking about? So these trans, these un expected, unplanned for, unforeseen, transformative moments, <clears throat> we do need, because we can't foresee them, we need to reach for what we can reach for. And sometimes mm -hmm. I think purpose with a small p gets us within range of the unforeseen, deeper purpose with a capital P mm. that we can't imagine. And so, you know, William Blake in his uh, aphorisms, he has a proverb that says, you know, straight is the road to improvement, but crooked is the road to genius. Hmm. You can't see that training for a race will lead you to meet a heron that will change your whole paradigm of how you view what you're doing. No. So, uh, and, and one further thing about that, and then I'll pause, is that the word genius, we understand it as meaning a particular, exceptional, brilliant capacity in one skill or, or talent. Well, the original, the notion of genius, the word literally means attendant spirit. Everyone has a genius. Mm. It, go, it goes by a thousand names, soul, Atman, uh, Dharma, you know, Buddha nature. The Holy Ghost, what I, you know, all kinds of names. Um, but straight is the road to improvement, but crooked is the road to finding our attendant spirit. This is the word genius is where the word genie comes from. Mm. So, you know, the, the myth about Aladdin and the lamp really archetypally starts to tell us, no, it's not that you're going to get what you wish for, but that if you can embrace your life, the lamp of your life, your attendant spirit will show to help you. Mm. Not necessarily give you what you want, <laughs> but to help you. Yeah. 
Hmm. Yeah. So it's not so much a question of where we are going, but it's more the question of who we are becoming on the way there is um, what I'm getting as a, a core message here. And yes. Yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. That's a very important part. It's so easy to get lost in the goal also <laughs> and and make that the all-important thing. Um, well, it's also, it's very humbling to recognize, <clears throat> and important, I feel, to recognize it has been in my life, that to even think I know where I'm going and what I want is is a little bit... Um, uh, arrogant and self-insulating. Mm. I feel like life has revealed itself as an ongoing conversation and relationship. So I can say what I see and what I know to be true now, like the cyclist training for the race, if I'm always open to the fact that giving myself wholeheartedly to what I can see now, be open to what it will reveal, that will change everything in mm-hmm. root. And then I have to reimagine and rethink. Oh, I thought it was about a race, but now it's about something else. What's that? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a really important um, thing to emphasize. I think. On the other hand, I get curious because it's um, that what what one thing that purpose and knowing one's purpose and um, the way I view it is, is that it kind of gives um, some guidance for how to navigate, for how to make choices and how to prioritize and where to aim one's energy. So I'm a bit curious because, um, yeah, how do you, how, how, what would you recommend in terms of how to navigate in life and how to actually decide? Well, so for me, yeah. yeah, so for me, my purpose is not is obviously from what we've been talking is less is not a destination Mm. but a vow to a way of being Mm -hmm. so my purpose is to stay as present as possible as wholehearted as possible as caring as possible and when i fall off how do i return to stay as open and listening. So, you know, with my work, you know, my purpose is to, you know, writing for me is listening and taking notes more than saying what I think I know. Mm. So my purpose is to stay or return to or be centered enough to stay in that position of listening with my heart when I write. Mm. And if I find I, I'm not there, then stop. 
walk away and come back when I can be in my heart. Mm. So in that regard, that purpose as a vow to a way of being, my sense of discipline has shifted over the years. In the beginning, like anyone, I was taught both by my parents and schooling, you know, that, that discipline means perseverance and staying focused and seeing things through and finishing things and not being distracted. <clears throat> mm. Well, <clears throat> no, purpose, uh, discipline now to me is if I drift up into my head away from my heart is to stop and walk away mm. until I can return to my heart. Mm. Because while I can write from my head, it'll, it's a silhouette, it's not three-dimensional. It's a blueprint, it's not embodied. Mm. It's black and white, it has no color. Mm. Yeah. So, so discipline means drop it, put everything down and return to being a student of life. Mm. So my purpose is wrapped up in those kinds of commitments. Mm. And I'm open on to where they will lead me. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. That's interesting. So, hmm. So you're in terms of um, finding one's way. So for you, it's you find your way by staying as presence, present and as much in a listening mode as possible. And you, in that way, you kind of feel where you are pulled or called yes and so so the relationship you know i have a small poem of mine that it goes like this the mystery is that whoever shows up when we dare to give has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble the mm. mystery is that whoever shows up when we dare to give has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. So just as the cyclist did, couldn't know that he would meet a heron that would, be, uh, that would shift his entire way of perceiving, I can't know where my heart will lead me to help and give and be kind. Mm. I can't know where that will, what, what teacher and teaching that will lead me to. Mm. that I need until I just give. Mm. So, so here's a good, here's a, a little parable. I've got uh, two st stories stacking up as we talk. Well, first one, uh, first one is a parable about uh, purpose. And so there are two, two monks and they're studying very, very seriously and preparing because one day, if they study hard enough, they will keep an appointment on the top of a mountain with Buddha. And so they study and they are very close and 
Uh, they work together. And so, yeah, the, the, they, they set out and they start climbing the mountain one day and they feel they're ready. And, um, and halfway up the mountain, one of the two monks breaks his leg. Hmm. And so the other monk, uh, he certainly wants to care for his, his brother and tries to make him comfortable. And they spend the night <clears throat> and, you know, the next morning as he's getting, as the, the one who didn't break his leg is getting ready to continue his climb up the mountain to meet Buddha. It's clear that his other isn't doing well. He's got a fever and he just can't leave him there. So the question is, of course, what do you do? What would you do, you know? And so this parable opens to us that when we have more people in an age, in a generation who would keep their appointment at the top of the mountain than care for their other, we have an age that engenders cruelty. Mm. When we have an age where more people will stop and realize that caring for their other is the summit, mm. we have an age that will engender compassion. And we face this choice repeatedly every day in our lives. So it doesn't matter what's on top of the mountain. You put whatever you want up there. You want to meet God, you want to be financially secure, you want to achieve great things, you want to be considered great in your field, um, you know, what, you know, you want to have 14 kids, grandkids, whatever you put on the top of the mountain, whatever appointment, when we start to value ideas, even dreams and things over people. We start to remove ourselves from life and we start very slowly to sow the seeds of cruelty. And again, it doesn't mean we can't want things and work toward things, but life, you know, what's in the way is the way. Mm -hmm. Life is always putting teachers and gifts in our way at the most uh, inopportune times. No, not now. I was just about to keep my appointment with Buddha. Really? Now, now you're going to break your leg? Mm. So that's the question. That's a question. That's a choice point, a question of purpose that everyone has the chance to practice over and over again. Mm. So I, let me give you the other story, which is an example of this choice point. Mm -hmm. And this comes from, uh, <clears throat> the history of Japan. So in the 1600s, there was a monk by the name of Tetsugen. And Tetsugen, at an early age, 
had a vision and he clearly had a sense of purpose. His sense of purpose was the talks of Buddha had not yet been translated into Japanese and he felt very deeply that he was supposed to do this, that this is what he was, who was put here for. And so with a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, he began translating the Dharma talks of Buddha into Japanese, one at a time. And, and he enlisted an artist friend and said, look, you, you, you know, you're so gifted. You make these beautiful woodblock prints and I'll translate and we'll beg alms along the way. And then we'll have enough money and we'll, we'll publish Buddha's talks, holy talks into Japanese. And so they were devoted to this. It was quite a journey for the two of them. And after about eight or nine years, there was a flood in northwest Japan where uh, Tetsugan grew up. And much like the, the mammoth floods we're seeing, like Katrina here in America or Irma or these terrible hurricanes. <clears throat> and so Tetsugan gave all the money away. Mm. And he continued to translate and his friend continued to make the woodblock prints and they continued, they went started over begging alms to have money to publish this beautiful holy text. And after about another 10 years, there was a famine in another part of Japan. And Tetsugan's heart had been opened by giving his money away the first time. And he said, well, I didn't grow up with these people, but I have to give it away. And he gave it away again. And after 25 years... Tetsugen finally published the talks of Buddha in Japanese with the beautiful woodblock prints. And today in Kyoto, one of the original copies is under glass in a museum in Kyoto. And there is a plaque that reads, in his lifetime, Tetsugen published three versions of the holy text. Only one is visible. Hmm. Yeah. And so here we have a story where his imagined purpose and his discovered purpose, he was able to live both. Mm. But clearly, the way that he was meant to translate Buddha's talks was by embodying them. Hmm. But he couldn't have predicted that he would have these two chances to give the money to help people who were in trouble. Just as the cyclist couldn't have predicted he would have encountered the heron. <clears throat> and it was only working toward what they each could see as their purpose with a small p that they each discovered their larger purpose. Mm. Mm. Which we can't plan, we can only inhabit. Hi, sorry for interrupting. I would just like to take a brief moment to share a bit about what I do as a purpose guide. So are you in a place in your life where you would really like to get engaged in something? Maybe there are many alternatives that are pulling you in different directions, but it's really hard to choose one. They all seem relevant and interesting. 
What you would like is to be able to fully commit to something so that you can be 100% engaged in what you're doing. In a way where you feel that your unique gifts and talents are made good use of. And where you feel that you're making a contribution towards a better world. So my solution to this dilemma would be to help you find your purpose. Because when you have that clarity about why you're here, why you're alive in this time and place, it's so much easier to choose. And when it's easier to choose, it's easier to get engaged in what you're doing without constant doubts about whether what you're doing is the right thing. So how do we do that? How do I help you get clear about your purpose? It's a process that is very much about connecting you to your soul, because your soul, the deepest part of yourself, is the part that knows your purpose. So the whole program, the Purpose Discovery Program, is very much centered around helping you get closer to your soul, and to get information from your soul about your purpose and the different aspects of your purpose. We divide purpose into eight different facets, vision, powers, values, essence, giveaway, task, message, and delivery system. And through different kinds of practices, you will gradually more and more clarify each of these throughout the process. Towards the end of the process, you're likely to have a very good soul-level understanding about why you're here. If this sounds interesting for you, you can book a free introductory session. It doesn't cost you anything, just a little bit of your time. We'll have a chat and we'll see if the program is the right fit for you and if you and I are a good fit to work on this together. So if you feel called, I really want to encourage you to go to my website and find the contact page and book a free session. Okay, let's get back to the interview. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I I know this from my own experience also very clearly that when you when you engage with your calling, you will be that will change you because you will need to grow in in so many ways in order to actually live your calling. And Yeah, so the ways in which we are changed by that process are, of course, at least as as important as what we kind of create out in the world. And um, yeah. So we are up. So this leads to another another story and another uh, another way of a deeper way of looking at this journey of purpose. Okay. And so this, for this story, we go back to, um, Homer's Odyssey. And so we all know that, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Iliad was 10 years of the Trojan war. And the Odyssey was that after the Trojan war was over, Odysseus, who was a master, uh, captain at sea, No one was a better sea captain or strategist at sea than Odysseus. And he had a 10-year journey, which is the Odyssey, to find his way back home after the 
after this long war and all the different trials and things that he encountered and he makes it home at the end um and by this time he's uh, you know he's he's getting on in years and um and he's home in Ithaca in ancient Greece <clears throat> with his wife Penelope and um and this is at the very end of the Odyssey. Okay, he's you know he's kind of bored. He's kind of retired, <laughs> hmm. and um, and he gets up one day with excitement. He says, "God, you know, I miss the sea. I'm I'm going back. That's it. I'm going hmm. back." He gathers his things. He leaves a note for his wife Penelope. He gets his sea things. He grabs an oar and he starts for the harbor. And halfway to the harbor. The blind soothsayer Tiresias appears as a spirit hovering above him and says, no, you are not going back to sea because you're going for the wrong reasons. You will turn around and you will walk inland far enough until you meet someone who doesn't even know what an oar is, let alone the sea. And then you will plant the oar and start a garden. So what is, what is this, the riddle of this story opening? Mm. Well, again, I don't have the answer, but what it says to me, why, why I tell it and why it has been instructive to me is that, you know, Odysseus wasn't asked to give up what he had learned at sea, but he was going back to sea because he missed being the master he missed having all the position, the respect, the adventure. And so what does the soothsayer says? He says, no, no, <clears throat> you will take what you've learned, but you will start again. You will go where they don't, they won't even, people won't even know what you're a master of. How about that? Hmm. And you'll plant the ore and start a garden. Hmm. And so what does this open? It opens that there is an inevitable archetypal journey, cycle of journeying in our life between exploration, mastery, and abandonment. Mm. Not abandonment as in relational abandonment, but, you know, we are never as alive in a certain way as when we're learning. So he was being asked to regain beginner's mind, beginner's heart. Don't give up what you've learned, but assume the position of the student again. Assume the position of being Adam or Eve again, going, my God, what is this thing over there that we call a tree? We have a name for it, but what is it really? Look at it again for the first time, you know. And then there is the more subtle but deeply gratifying aliveness that comes from mastering anything becoming a master woodworker a master gardener which means ultimately being the deepest student of all of whatever that happens to be but then at some point we have to abandon it all to start again mm. so we can come alive again you know, Darwin, at the end of his life, you know, Darwin was an amazing uh, creative force who, as you know, observed nature 
and the evolution of uh, well came up with the known notion of evolution of of creatures all over the world but you know what in his last letter which was to his sister he wrote if i had to do it again i would have read poetry and listened to music at least once a week to for the aliveness of my heart as it is, I've become a machine generating facts. Mm. So, you know, it's not to say it could have been the other way around. He could have been, Homer could have written that and, and said, I needed to stop. Uh, it's not about poetry or, or being a biologist. It's about exploration, mastery, abandonment, the paradox of retaining what we've learned in order to keep growing, mm. in order to keep growing. So, which involves, I mean, this is another vow of purpose for me is to, is to keep uh, empty, what, if I embody something, then I can learn what I can from it, but then I have to empty it out. So I'm, there's nothing in the way between me and beginner's mind or beginner's heart again. You know, it's interesting that I wouldn't say everything because you never say everything, but I think most musical instruments are all hollow <laughs> because if they're not emptied, hollowed out, there's no music. Mm. Yeah, and that relates to kind of the listening for me. We need to make ourselves um, quite empty in order to um, hear our soul speak and hear the call of the world. And yes, yeah, we need to make ourselves an instrument. So there's a there's a small. Now, there's a small story that's more of a modern story about this, and, and that's where two, two um, you know, physicists, quantum physicists are, uh, you know, they're excited about their work. And, and they were also seeing, as has been shown in recent years, that uh, a different language, but there's a lot, a lot that echoes in early Eastern philosophy and worldview that echoes what the language of quantum physics is all about. And so they want to go and discuss their theories with an old Tibetan sage. So they, they write and they make the journey and they go across when we could travel, they go across the ocean and they go by train and then bicycle and Sherpa and they go up into the hills up in, you know, in, in Tibet. And, and so there's a little hut and they're waiting for this, old old sage to come out to talk to him and they're in a hut waiting there's a little table with three cups and a hot pot of tea and finally this old man comes in with a cane doesn't even look at them and he starts to pour tea into one of the cups and the cup is full but he keeps pouring and now the tea is spilling over the cup onto the table and he's still pouring and now one of the physicists looks at the other and they think, oh, God, we came all this way and the guy's not lucid. He's lost it. You know? <laughs> what do we do? What do we say? And, and, and all the while, the sage just, just 
keeps pouring the tea. It's going on the on the floor of the hut, off the table. And finally, one of the physicists says, Your Holiness, um, the, the cup is full. And without looking at him, the sage says, Still pouring, as are your minds. Empty them and return, and then we shall talk. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would like to ask about another um, a concept that's very <laughs> closely related to purpose, but maybe it has a bit of a different nuance. Um, calling, how do you do? You, yeah, how do you relate to to that word? What does that evoke well, in you? So calling, you know, I, let me start by saying this: that for me. Um, the awakening of our soul is our career. Mm -hmm. Where that happens is our occupation. Mm. The awakening of our soul is our career, <clears throat> and where that happens is our occupation, which can change. So I feel the calling The calling is like, so let's, let's talk about it this way, that the destiny of every flower and plant and fruit is to break ground and open. Mm. That's its calling. Um, its particular purpose is for it to be the particular plant or flower or fruit it was born to be. So a peony isn't going to be a rose. And nor does a peony envy the rose. Or the other way around. And so in this way, we are all called. This comes back to the very beginning for me that of our conversation that we are all called to uh, to break ground and open. Mm. And our purpose is where that happens and how particularly in the world we can find the form that is most congruent with who we are. Mm. And so, so let's stay for a moment because I think that the the metaphor of the flower and, and the plant is very, it's very helpful here. Because in, in our world, our modern world especially, we all have been kind of taught that life, you know, that, that we journey from here to there. Mm. When I think our calling is really from in to out, so, and obviously in the surface world, we go from here to there in order to live in the outer world. But that's again, that's the occupation that can happen anywhere. That's mostly finding conditions where who we are can blossom the best, mm. the most. 
So you look at a seed, you, you say you plant a seed in the ground. Now a seed imprinted, encoded in that seed is the full flower. So in, you know, in our calling, our manifestation of our spirit is already there in the world. And we have to discover it and inhabit it. And, and so that seed, we take it for granted, before that seed has no knowledge of what light even is. Mm. And something in it, it is being called toward an element and a force that it has no even knowledge of. And as it grows toward that force, it breaks ground and then starts to experience light. I think this is the equivalent, breaking ground is the equivalent of awakening mm. for us. And then we grow and the shoots come out and roots deepen. And then that flower or plant, let's stick with the flower right now, that flower literally turns itself inside out to reveal its inner beauty. And it does this without ever going anywhere. Mm. I think that process describes our calling. Mm. Yeah. Although there's one little difference. I'm curious to explore a little bit here because um, the flower... Um, while I, yeah, it's a very good metaphor because it, it is like we have this seed and it's kind of, it really wants to blossom through us, but a flower doesn't really have a choice but to follow its calling while a human actually can go against their calling. And so how, how do you understand that? Well, this is, this is the realm of, uh, of human choice mm. you know we yes we are you're that is a wonderful insight that that you know we can learn from the teaching of the seed to the to, as it becomes the flower but it has no choice but we as human beings have so many gifts and so many facets that we can interrupt our own growth Mm. And just as quickly, we can remove what's in the way, you know, so we, we have that capacity. And this is why one reason we need an inner practice and why we need each other mm. and why we need each other so that we can uh, recover our calling when we lose our way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We need a practice to stay close to our soul. Yes, we do. We all need it. And, and, you know, my commitment, like I mentioned earlier that I have, uh, out of my cancer journey, you know, I have become a student of all paths and, and I feel like 
we need all paths and every individual's responsibility is to fill their own toolbox not to choose or pit one path against another but to find the combination of ways and practices that bring each of us most alive hmm. you know and to understand this again i go to, to a metaphor of spring but now the larger sense of spring that you know every spring thousands of insects and birds each one born with a yearning for a particular pollen to or a particular nectar actually to mm. then bring a particular pollen all in different places and then all together we have spring mm. well if the bees were fundamentalist and insisted that their way of pollinating was the way mm. and if even if they were successful well you you'd never have spring no and i think we are given so many paths even the quote non paths so even an atheist or an agnostic or you know you just every path you can imagine we need all of those paths because we don't know what particular what particular thing we're supposed to pollinate hmm. in the human spring no. so, so we need them all Mm. Yeah. And part part of purpose for me and calling I mean one way to talk about this is that that calling is honoring that which awakens in us and purpose is what is the particular thing we're supposed to pollinate to contribute to the whole. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Purpose is always about our role in the bigger picture. It's never about something that's only for for ourselves. Yes, I agree. I agree completely. Yeah, and our unique gift is crucial in order for the spring to be as beautiful as it is. Yeah. Okay, we need to start wrapping up here. So I would like to give you a little bit of space here to share a little bit about yeah, your upcoming offerings. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation together. Um, well, I'm, you know, I am uh, a teaching online, as so many people are these days. Mm -hmm. And I've been very heartened that it is actually, I mean, it never replaces being in person, but it's quite, quite meaningful. And there's a lot of connection. So I'm very heartened by that. And so I am offering a, a, a webinar in October, a three session webinar, October 4, 11, and 18. Uh, that'll be an hour and a half each Sunday in three weeks in a row. And that's going to be on the theme, More Together Than Alone, The Power and Spirit of Community. And um, and folks who are interested can find more details and register at live.marknepo.com. 
and we'll be exploring many of the things we're talking about um and um especially as they pertain to these very trying times that we're that we're going through mm. great do you want to say something about your latest book also yeah thank you so you know my latest book is called the book of soul 52 paths to living what matters and they're not sequential paths much in the sense of pollination no one path uh really does it for everyone or anyone and so i'm just offering a handful of many paths and at the same time there's 52 so that you can journey with a chapter a week over a year i really encourage my readers to not uh speed read through a book but to to read a chapter and then live your life and come back and read a chapter and live your life and let the conversation of life and you and whatever I might offer weave together. Um, and I invite that deeper journey. Hmm. Well, great. Okay, so thank you so much, Mark, for being on the Life Purpose podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, let me let me leave you with a poem of mine. Hmm. Um, called Inside Everything. Keep trying to hide, and in time you become a wall. Keep trying to love, and in time you become love. Our journey on earth is to stop hiding so we can become love. Everything else is a seduction and a distraction. Courage is staying true. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have enjoyed the podcast today, I'd be grateful if you share it. If you feel like your purpose is calling to you, I recommend checking out the Purpose Discovery Meditation that you can find on my website. These are strong words, but I can almost guarantee that this meditation will give you at least some piece of new information concerning your purpose. I say that based on that this is what people again and again report back to me after doing the meditation. Other resources that you can find there are teachers like Sarah Beek, Terry Patton and Dustin DiPerna answering the question of how to find your purpose. And there is also a purpose embodiment meditation by Brody Hartman. You can find all of this in the members area of my website. It doesn't cost you anything at all to become a member, it's completely free. You just sign up with your name and email address and receive a password, and that gives you access to the meditations and all of the other resources. Just go to paulisari.com and find the members area or use the link in the show notes. Alright, that's it for today. Thank you for listening and I'll talk to you soon. (music) 